Well, I would like you to uh, turn and, or invite you to turn your Bibles or devices to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. And we're going to be in verses 25 to 32 this morning. And if you need a Bible, if you don't have a Bible of your own, there should be a blue one in front of you. And let me tell you this, if you don't have a Bible of your own and you have a blue one in front of you, take it home with you and then bring it back next week and then you'll be ready to go because we'd love for you to have the Word of God in front of you and be able to, to read it. Page 978. As you're arriving there, I'd like to remind us where we are in the Scriptures. Uh, since last week, we took, we skipped, we skipped some, oh, it's, it's hard for me to do that, but we skipped to chapter 6 where we talked about God's Word to our family, which was talking specifically to children and to fathers. But I hope you got a lot out of it. But this week, we're going to finish in chapter 4. Let me remind you of what the book of Ephesians has taught us. Paul has taught the amazing truths about the riches of God's grace in Christ. The incredible inheritance that we have because of Christ and all of the spiritual blessings, everyone that we'll ever need, we have been provided through Christ. Do you see a pattern here? Christ! Christ, we have everything that we could possibly need through Him. Through Him. And because of that, we're told in the beginning of chapter 4, where Paul turned, he transitioned into the to-do part of the book, he told us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and great gentleness, with patience, bearing with, another in, with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because a true believer has been changed. Jesus would say it this way. You've been born again. Paul said it in another way. He wrote, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A Christ follower has not been remodeled. You've been built into a new creation. From the ground up, you're new. You're new. And because you've been changed, we must not walk in the old manner of life in, which we, in the way we once walked. We're not called. We've been changed. We're new. Now, we know that easy to say, right? Easy to say. Well, how does it happen? Look in your Bibles. Look in your Bibles in chapter 4, verses 22. This is how it happens. To put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new. Put on the new. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You walk in new life by putting off and putting on. By putting off and putting on. I'm going to use a lot of Dannyisms today. You've been made new, now walk like it. 
the late James Boyce said it more succinctly. Believers are to follow certain Christian standards precisely because God has already made them new creatures in Christ by putting away the old nature and putting on the new. This is an important point. The apostle is not merely urging a new and higher standard of morality on people. That is an utterly futile thing. We cannot be made genuinely better by mere moral suasion. That is not it at all. Rather, Paul is demanding a high form of behavior precisely because something decisive has already taken place. We have already been made new in Christ. That is why we should and must act like it. You might be saying to yourself, okay, get to the examples. I need some how-tos. What are you talking about? How am I supposed to live? And in this passage, we're given five. And in fact, the rest of the book of Ephesians teach us how we're to act. Well, we're going to break right into it. We're going to look at the first example found in verse 25. Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. It's simply going to, I'm simply going to cut to the chase. Again, the first Dannyism. Stop lying and tell the truth. I'm sure it could be said in a much nicer way. Have you ever known somebody that when they're talking, you know, when they're talking, when their lips are moving, you know they're lying? It's a common malady, and it's been that way since Genesis 3. Well, what's a lie? I want to make sure that everybody understands what, what's a, what a lie is. To lie is defined as, and I quote, to make an untrue statement with the intent to deceive. Now, if I told you that, you know, you, I know you need to catch a plane at LAX, and you need to leave at a certain time. You're gonna, you need to leave by 10 o'clock so you can be on that plane at 3 p.m., 10 a.m., 3 p.m. Yes, that's what I wanted to say. So you take off, and all of a sudden, we didn't know that there was a wreck at Gorman. And you were too far, you couldn't make it to go past anywhere, and all of a sudden, there's a wreck behind you. You can't turn around. If you didn't get to LAX in time, and I didn't know about it, that's not a lie. Even though I told you you could make it if you left at 10. Now, if I told you, because I don't like you, and I just really love to see a person stress out that you can make it. And I knew that there was, there were uh, basically road construction happening at that particular time, and you couldn't get there. And I'm chuckling all the way to, because you can't get there. That's a lie. That's the difference. Do you know that God's enemy, mankind's enemy, the devil? He's a liar. He's known as the father of lies. And he wants you to believe, he wants you to believe that God is a liar. In Genesis 3, what did he say? Did God actually say that? 
You know, I read this week, whenever a child of God speaks the truth, the Spirit of God works. But whenever we tell a lie, Satan goes to work. Speak truth. Please hear me. We might think that we're helping someone. We might even like them. Well, I'm going to lie to them because it might help them out. But that's a lie. That's even a lie. We might not see the consequences immediately, but they will come out. I was looking back this week at some of the things that we've studied in the past, the, the books that we've studied, and in 2019, we studied the epistles of John. And he wrote this in his first letter. He said, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Church, how did Christ define himself? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But hear me, it's not enough just to put off falsehood. We have to put on truth. If you take something off, you have to put it back on. If you take something out of something, you have to put it back in. The reason why we put on truth because we're members of the same body. When we deal with our brothers and sisters next to us, we owe them to tell the truth. When we deal with the world around us, we should be known that when our lips are moving, we are telling the truth. Our relationship with each other is that important. Church father John Christostom wrote, and I love this guy's nickname, he was called Golden Throat. He spoke so eloquently, all the words came out and they were gold. He wrote and said, if your eye sees a serpent, does it lie to the foot? If your nose smells a deadly drug, will it lie to the mouth? Or if the tongue tastes something bitter, will it lie to the stomach? The obvious answer, what, church, is no. You're a new person in Christ. Tell the truth. The second example. When anger comes, don't sin. Now, some of you, I think, when we think of anger, we automatically might think, it's always wrong. Well, as I did with lying, I'd like to define the word. Anger is an emotional arousal caused by something that displeases us. Verse 26, at least the first half of it, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now hear me, I know some of you might drop down and faint, but anger in itself is not sin. How can I say that? Because God is said to be angry.
one of the things that I believe people can get in trouble with when they deal with the Old Testament. Can we get this ring out somehow? I don't know. Can I just, can I change and grab? Defend God because he seems like such a vicious, mean God. Don't. God is God. God can do what he wants. It is his creation. And he is angry at sin. But he sent a son to take care of that. Places in the Old Testament, God is said to have fierce anger towards sin and injustice. Well, we think, well, that can't be God. Picture Jesus in the New Testament in the temple. Throwing over the tables, taking a whip, chasing people out of the temple. Why? Because they turned it into a marketplace instead of a house of prayer. He exhibited godly, righteous anger. And when we are, as Christians, when we see injustice, sins being perpetrated against the innocent, we should be angered too. And that's called righteous anger. I'll wade in, and no pun intended, on what has happened this week. The leaked Supreme Court decision, Roe versus Wade, returning the state's decisions to whether abortion is legal or not. And let me rephrase that. Whether the killing of an unborn, innocent human being is legal to do. We don't have the time to argue this morning that an unborn child is made in the image of God. We don't have time to argue this morning that it shares our genetic code from the point of conception. We don't have time to argue that an unborn child is, or against the argument, that it's a parasitic thing inside of a mother and it needs its mother to survive. That's irrelevant. Because a child, a two-year-old child, needs a mother to be able to sustain life. If you let it go, it will die. That argument falls flat. Talk to a woman or a man who is aged, who is on their deathbed. They, if they are not brought things to keep them alive, food and water, they will die as well. They are made in the image of God. Sorry, I digress. We need to pray that our nation wakes up from its murderous ways. That make the Holocaust pale in comparison. Six million Jews died in the Holocaust. Over 63 million unborn children have died since 1973. Now, ladies, I'm going to speak to you if you have had an abortion. Forgiveness is given through Christ. 
forgiveness is given. But make no mistake, it lasts a lifetime. Psalm 139, for you were formed in my inward, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as of yet there was none of them. That's an example of something to be angry about. But the verse says, do not sin. Bombing an abortion clinic is sin. Physical harm to someone who is pro-choice, that is sin. Even being heated at a human being that has the opposite point of view of our discussion can quickly lead to sin. Anger is sometimes described as being kindled, which means it can, it's a fire. And a fire, while being a good thing, who doesn't love a good fire? Sorry, Ricky, who doesn't love a good fire? But it can quickly become destructive. That's why we should be very careful. Verse 27 tells us, and give no opportunity to the devil. The devil can quickly exploit the strains that, that occur when anger is kindled. William Henderson writes, Hendrickson, excuse me, the devil will not wait around for you to calm down. He will quickly seize a foothill, foothold, change the grievance, rather righteous or not, into a grudge. Then it morphs into an unwillingness to forgive. Here's Solomon's answer. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. When anger comes, don't sin. Deal with it quickly. The third example of how we must live is this. Stop stealing, instead work so you're able to give. Stop stealing. Now, Paul breaks out the eighth commandment. You go, Paul. I love it. Go, go, go. But you know we, don't, we no longer live under law, right? We no longer live under law, but we do need to understand that nine out of the ten, ten commandments, they were restated as ways a new covenant believer is to conduct themselves. Nine out of ten, you know what the tenth one is? The Sabbath day. And Paul said, every day is a day for this, to worship the Lord. Well, God attributes, the way, attributes in ways that he wants us to deal with the world around us. And that has not changed. He says, he's quoting the, the Eighth Commandment, let the thief no longer steal. And to steal is to take something that doesn't belong to you. That was an easy definition. James Boyce is, again, very helpful. He writes, there are many different ways that we can steal, of course. We steal from God when we fail to worship him as we ought or when we set our own interests before his legitimate interests. We steal from him when we fail to honor him by our lives or fail to tell others of his love. 
We steal from an employer when we do not give the best, best of work of which we are capable or when we waste time or consistently leave work early. If we're in business, we can steal by overcharging for what we make or for the service that we render. We steal if we sell an inferior product, pretending it's better than it is. We steal by borrowing and not repaying. We steal by damaging another's reputation. We steal from ourselves when we waste the time, talents, or resources God has entrusted to us. We've all stolen something, haven't we? Stealing was particularly rampant or common to slaves in the first century. They weren't well taken care of, and they were often in need. They, were, they didn't even have, most of the time, the basics of life. They needed to be paid every day. And if they lost their job, there was no unemployment. And the law gave them almost no protection whatsoever. Understand, when they're told not to steal, this would have been a great stretch of faith. Are you going to tell me if I can't feed my family, I'm not supposed to steal? Are you going to tell my three-year-old who's crying that isn't fed? Are you going to tell them that I can't? How am I going to do this? That's where the community of believers come in. If there's a common need, make sure that your brother and sister is taken care of. So instead of acquiring a five-finger discount, one of my favorite words for the steal, but Paul implores this, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now understand, if you could work, you were expected to. This isn't a welfare thing. If if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's what Paul writes. But this isn't even speaking to someone with, this isn't speaking to someone with handicaps, but someone who is able and not willing to work. But look at the last phrase. Why did the person work? I know many of you have great work ethics, and you go, I'm going to work, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to do this. But what is it for? Ultimately, what is it for? So that they would be able to share. That's not give everything that you have, but if someone's in need, it's our responsibility to make sure that they're fed and they have clothing. Not forced to share, but willingly and without compulsion. And if you're forced to give, you're being robbed. The fourth example of how a Christ follower lives because they're new. I could have really gotten crazy with this one, but I held myself. Get rid of rotten speech. Only speak words that edify. I know edify is a word I would just say. Only words that build up. Our Lord made a very keen observation. He said when he was talking to the Pharisees, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When Christ's spirit 
takes residence in you. Your words change. It changes how you speak. Let no corrupting talk, literally rotten words, come out of your mouth. This is more than the F-bombs. This is more than the four-letter words that might come out. This is more than something after you hit your head or bang your thumb with a hammer. The corrupting words, the rotten words, the stinking words that tear people apart, that destroy them. But the opposite. Remember, we take off, but we put on. The opposite of these types of words are what a Christian should use, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Grace! God loves you. Change. God loves you. Can I help you with that? God loves you. And I love you. When we studied the book of James in 2017, we were told how powerful words can be. I'll let James's words prove the argument. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is a set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now, if I know me, and I do not yield to the Holy Spirit, I am apt not to control my words. And believe me, our words are not often neutral. Frank Gabaline wrote, Tongue control? It will never be achieved unless there is first of all heart and mind control. When any Christian comes to the point of yielding to the Lord in full sincerity, cost what it may, control of his thought life, the problem of managing his tongue will be solved, provided that such a surrender goes deeper than the intellect and reaches the emotions and will. For the Bible makes a distinction between mere intellectual knowledge of God and the trust of the heart. It always comes back to the heart. And who's in control of it? Administer grace with your speech. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, when you look at this verse, it almost seems like it comes out of the blue. What, why is it here? What, it could have been placed anywhere after any of the verses, it seems. All of what we must put off and, and put on. And this is my opinion because there are so many different ideas of why it's here. This is, this is my opinion. Paul mentioned the neighbor in verse 25. He mentioned the devil in verse 26. He mentioned the one in need in verse 28 and the hearer in 29. Now he refers to the one. Capital O, one. The one who is most important. The one who has sealed you. The one who lives inside of you. The one who grieves when we fail to put, put off the old man and put on the new. Concerning the Holy Spirit of God. And then we'll move to our fifth and final example. Do you understand that the Holy Spirit of God is not a force? He is not a force. It's not, may the force be with you. He is a person. He has feelings. He can be grieved. He can be lied to. He can be resisted. He can be quenched. And when we fail to be led by him, resist his guidance, and especially in our words, which show that we're clinging to our old condition, when we fail to build up the church, he's grieved. He lives inside of you. The fifth and final example, example excuse me, remove bitterness, replace it with forgiveness. Well, these words display several sins of attitude and expand what Paul said previously about anger, that all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. What's he talking about? Bitterness is a word describing a sharp instrument like a tip of an arrow that's pointed. And it's a spirit of resentment that refuses to be reconciled. I refuse. I'm bitter. I'm not giving it up. Wrath describes a subtle, supple, deep-flowing, persistent antagonism against someone. It's a slow burn. I'm angry. Clamor. Excuse me, I'm skipping one. Anger. It's an emotional outburst. It's a temper tantrum. I'm so angry. Clamor. It means to shout. It means... I'm so mad, it's, it's ah! and you scream and you yell. Slander, it's the, from the word blasphemia. It's when someone speaks evil about others and speaks evil against God. All malice, it adds it all up. 
Just put them all together. And these sins, thoughts, and attitudes invite Satan to be an influence into your life. They grieve the Holy Spirit of God, harm the church, and even hurt yourself. Put them away from you. Put them away. Went to Disney on Ice last night, or yesterday afternoon, and out of all the things, all the crazy characters that were going off, you know, but we took our grandkids, uh, two of our grandkids there, and Nori, she was watching everything. She liked all the princesses and everything else. And, and Wade, you know what Wade liked the best? The Zamboni machine that was dressed up like a truck. <laughs> I love that boy. Take these vices, I speaking of trucks, take these vices and take them to the dump, dump them out, and watch the steamroller, that's even a better one, an excavator, what boy doesn't like an excavator, what man shouldn't love an excavator, what woman shouldn't love an excavator that takes it and takes it and puts it away and buries them all. church, remember this truth. You can't just get rid of something without filling the empty space. When you take off that old, smelly, tattered clothing, you must put something back on. Be kind, which means to be good and honest, be worthy to one another. Tenderhearted means to be compassionate from the gut forgiving one another. If it's not for your sake, it's for yours. It's not for their sake, it's for your sake. But not just for your sake, it's for Christ's sake, as God in Christ forgave you. Church, I finish here. It says, act like Christians. Act like who you've been called to be for God's sake. And only by God's power will this take place. If you would, I would ask that I have your attention for just a few more minutes. Last Tuesday, I met with... Uh, RBC's elders, elders for a scheduled review. And I was asked to bring my future goals and my vision with me to the meeting. And they are in a nutshell. As when I started as a youth pastor in 2001, and as I transitioned to RBC's lead pastor in 2015, I want to remain faithful to the ministry that has been entrusted to me. I also wish to see Rosedale Bible Church flourish. I do wish and hope to see people hungry for the Word of God, sacrificially caring for one another and desperate to reach the lost. On March 13th, 
as I lay in the ER after suffering a stroke earlier that morning, I prayed what was next for me. I was alive. My right side being numb with seemingly no other visible maladies. That's the strange part, the visible maladies. There's nothing visible there. I was blessed. I was at peace. So was my wife. God is sovereign and he is always good. But I've still prayed for what God had for us next. I was allowed to take time off. Thank you. I'm grateful for that. To be very honest, I am not where I need to be or want to be in a cognizant manner. You know, the visible things that we have also have the invisible. I'm having greater difficulty putting thoughts into the written page, written words on a page than before. At times, I'm struggling for words when I go off script. I know what I want to say, but I can't. I'm tired, and I don't know if I'll ever get back to where I was previously. As for the reason for my stroke, which is AFib, my medications have not remedied the situation, and my cardiologist has for me next in the middle of July to have an ablation, and hopefully that will take care of that, and, but I don't know that yet. I've been praying for God's leading. I love Rosedale Bible Church and her people. I've served, her, served our Lord faithfully, and God willing will continue to do so with his help for the time that I have left. But I believe it's time that our RBC begins in search for our next lead pastor. God is faithful and has someone who has, he has prepared for such a time as this. With RBC's leadership, I know that the Lord will continue to lead and guide his church into its next exciting season. With many new families and faces, with established families who are eager to serve, RBC has a bright, promising, great future. With that being said, I've asked to be able to step away from vocational ministry on August 31st. I know that finding a pastor isn't often a quick process, but God is faithful. He is faithful. He will provide in his own timing. It is an honor to serve the Lord with 